0: Hello again, everyone. This is Frank Lauder, and I'm here
1: in Florida with the director of this film, Bill Grafay. This is one of the few films uh, that I left the swamps of Florida, went out to Tinseltown, Hollywood, California, and shot this movie.
0: (laughs) And how did that come about? Because uh, you are the director of this, even though you're not listed in the credits.
1: Right, the way this came about, it's a real insane story. This fellow that produced this he's a gentleman named Stuart Merrill, better known as Terry Merrill. And he was in uh, Hook Generation, right? Right.
0: right. Associate yeah. producer
1: and one of the actors. Right, we, we worked together on several films. <clears throat> so Terry was out in LA and he calls me up out of the blue and he said, Bill, I got a great script, great script. It's what's happening today, it's all about the hippie movement and uh, I want you to jump on a plane and get out here immediately. I want you to direct this movie. So I said, well, Terry, it didn't quite work that way because I've been around the block enough to know you never spend your own money on a plane ticket uh, it, with promises. So anyway, Terry, I want X number of dollars. Uh, you know, I want a round trip plane ticket, I'll be out there. So about a week by a gentleman came by house house paid me some money and uh, i got a ticket round trip ticket and i I went to l.a so i terry meets me at the airport he said bill i'm in real trouble he said what's the matter Terry?" and he said uh well i lied to you there's no script (laughs) and i said what what do you mean there's no script you wouldn't send it to me but he says well i got a great idea great idea but there's no script (laughs) And I said, well, you know, here this money came up for me to get out here. You've got financing. Well, not exactly. Uh, Not exactly money. But uh, what I did is I've got $100,000 in trading stamps. And I said, what the hell is trading stamps? And he said, well, uh, there's an organization out here that in order to... uh, not use money, which is the the new movement. You trade everything. In other words, if you owned a television, a repair shop, and you had these trading stamps and you needed somebody to repair your transmission that was also in the Trading Stamp Association, you took your car in. he'd trade stamps for the transmission, and then if he wanted a TV, he'd trade stamps for that. So he said, I raised all these trading stamps. And I said, well, hell, we need some cash to make this movie. And he said, well, we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. So he had made a deal with a motel right there on Sunset, opposite the New World restaurant. And uh, this uh, hotel was on trading stamps. So I had to eat every single meal there. I had to stay there. So after three or four days, he's running around like crazy. And finally, I said, Terry, I cannot eat another meal. here. Uh, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. But Terry had a pretty good idea. He had an idea about a uh, priest that left the church, traveled with all the long hairs, and, and got into the whole hippie movement. So it was a pretty good concept for the time. So anyway, after eating all these meals and staying there three days, I said, Terry, look, I can't take another meal. It was a Ramada Inn, I remember, the Romana, I can't take another meal here. I will treat, we'll go across the uh, street to the New World. So we go across the street and we're sitting there and there was this blonde girl with a boyfriend sitting there. And I said, no, look at that girl. She looks like a typical hippie. Terry says, profet, you're brilliant. <laughs> He's over to her table, <laughs> muscles out the boyfriend, says, you would be perfect to star in my movie. I'll give you X number of points. So now we have our lead actress who was a real hippie and never acted in her life before. So, but we still, we didn't have that, a script.
0: That's, that's Carolyn Hall? Yeah, that's Carolyn
1: Hall. <laughs> So now, if we're looking right here, the young fellow plays the priest. I'm having breakfast at the Ramada Inn, and he walks in, and he had one of those um, leather-bound briefcases that a lot of actors uh, carry to show all of their pictures and all. I said, now, look at that guy. He looks like a a perfect priest. Buffet, you're brilliant, Uh, boom, he's over the guy's table talks even you're now starring in my movie as this priest. So now we got our two lead actors but we have no script I, I <laughs> so every day we'd sit around well what are we going to do today? okay well uh, let's uh, you know go to this church and we'll, we'll, we'll shoot this scene where the priest goes on an acid trip five you know so we'd sneak into a church and not get permission or anything because back in those days all the churches were open and we did limited lighting and so forth actually about I would say 90% of this film is handheld uh, uh, I very seldom put the camera on a tripod but uh, it was shot in 16 originally and uh,
0: so but 90% half handheld and 90% ad-lib also that's the
1: right? I mean, 99% <laughs> ad-lib oh, and, and so any event, uh, so now we've, uh, we'd go out and, oh, well, where all the hippies hang out? Well, Topanga Canyon is a stronghold. Please. Okay, we'll, we'll take a ride out to Topanga Canyon. <laughs> One time uh, we were riding out to Topanga Canyon. I'll never forget this. And here, Jeremy Slate, who started Hook Generation, Jeremy is barefooted walking along by Malibu. And it was like, oh, maybe eight in the morning and he looked hungover like he wouldn't believe and we made a Huey we came back and we screamed out you hippie son of a bitch get the hell out of the way you know <laughs> and Jeremy scared to death wondering who the hell is this you know and so anyway uh, we really had a, a session with uh, with Jeremy there and then we took off kept going up past Malibu to Topanga Canyon and uh, so anyway, uh, these trading stamps, what he did is we uh, ended up, uh, he ended up selling him for like 20 cents on the dollar to get enough cash to get raw stock and uh, some lab thing. And our crew consisted of one hippie that was stoned out of his mind <laughs> half the time. Another guy was an old alcoholic that couldn't get arrested. He tried to get on a film crew, but he had experience 20 years before. Myself, who did all the camera work, and uh, Terry did some of the lighting, and so we had about four or five people on the crew. And then, whenever we needed uh, reflector hell or something, we recruit some of the hippies. But uh, how do how do you? Schedule a film that's ad-libbed. You don't. Know, you just uh, get up uh, in the morning, talk about it, and then figure, well, here's where we're gonna go, and then we sit with the actors and tell them this is what's happening, and we do a couple rehearsals. But I, I give the actors credit, who were not actors. Yeah. But they uh, they really ad-lib so much of it. Just point them in a direction, mm-hmm. and later on, there's a scene. The real hippies that a girl has a baby yeah and we just picked these hippies off the street and these kids did a fantastic job you know but uh well you know the, the film has the feel of a, of a road trip
0: where the characters don't know what's going on and maybe that's why it works so well. nobody knew what yeah. was going on
1: <laughs> but some way the thing edited together you know and, and uh, this this was uh you know an acid trip we we did inside a real church, you know, and
0: uh, just. Uh, I still think every film should have at least one as a trip scene. <laughs> well, especially in a movie made in the '60s and early '70s. Right? <laughs> you know, also this uh, this film is so obscure, as of um, as of yesterday morning, and this is what uh, May 22nd is we're recording, right? As of yesterday morning. It still, there was no mention of it on the, for instance, on the Internet Movie Database, if you wanted to find anything. Right. And I can't find, I can find almost nothing about this
1: in books. Was it released? Well, the, the story on this is Terry, There was a, uh, a uh, distributor who was pretty well known in the independent world at the time, named Joe Solomon. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Joe Solomon had released some pretty good uh, drive-in type movies about, so anyway, Joe Solomon loved this movie and, and thought it was what was happening today. And Terry took it to, who? Terry was a producer, took it to Joe Solomon, and they literally got in a fight over it. And, and Joe Solomon... Wait, <laughs> wait, wait, wait. I mean, when did he get into a fight? I mean... And... During the discussion of, of money and, and so <laughs> forth. And uh, so Joe Solomon sort of... Uh, I guess pull the old Hollywood thing—you'll you'll never work in this town again. I guess it was you'll never distribute this movie in town again. But uh, one one problem also with the movie is being shot on 16. You uh, you needed 35 millimeter to get into the drive-in theaters and so forth, mm-hmm. and it's uh, uh, could never get the money to uh, blow the film up, which was. You know, well, it still is quite expensive to do a good blow-up.
0: So, so did, Solomon's company was Fanfare, did they did they actually release it?
1: No, no. They it, didn't?
0: It, okay. Well, so, where did the title Jesus Freak come from?
1: Well, it, it, there were several titles. As, as this says, Electric Shades of Grey, and then uh, the Jesus Freak being the, the, the priest, and, and, and some of the hippies and all, and uh, like Psychedelic that. Priest was one, so anyway there's all that kind of, like a TV show right <laughs> all kind of titles and all, you know but uh this uh we, we had a good time on this because there was only four or five of the crew and we just traveled around we had a big uh, van that we traveled around and oh one wild story is we were in a going down sunset Boulevard and in those days all the hippies, they were sleeping in doorways and up in the hills and all around the place. And so Terry had come in the night before, and he said he'd gone out that night. And he said I met a witch last night, and this witch is for real, you know. It's, I go, no, 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 this, "He's nuts, okay." <laughs> and he said, "No, this Lita. Well, Lita had five pages in Esquire magazine." She was supposed to be a real witch. So anyway, we're out this one day filming, and we're going up and down Sunset Boulevard just doing pickup shots of hippies and so forth. And Terry out of the blue says, Lita, Lita is calling me. And he turns the car, and we drive up the Hollywood Hill, and we come up to this big, uh, it's almost like a castle in the Hollywood Hills. He says, this is where Lita, she's calling me. So we go up to the door and it's myself and Terry and they, um, the hippie drugged out kid that was on the crew and then the old guy, we go to the door and so this big black bodyguard comes and this guy, he's like 6'6", about 270. He comes to the door, opens the door and he says, who do you want to see? And we said, um, he said, Alita, well, Alita's calling me. Huh? So he says, "Wait here." <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. You know, we're not about to go up against this guy. So about five minutes later, Alita comes down the stairs, and she's all in this flowing gown, and she's got feathers and all of this. And uh, she looks at Terry, and she said, "Oh, you're putting off bad vibes today." And she looks at me and she says, Oh, you're putting off good vibes. You two can come in. And she comes in the door and the hippie kid comes to go through the door and she slams the door right in his face and leaves the hippie kid, and this whole crew member outside. And so we go into a room and she's got this big throne and she got peacock feathers and all. So we're wrapping her And then all of a sudden, bam, bam, she claps her hands and this yeah, she says tea is served and she brings in this silver tra- uh, This like servant brings in this silver platter with tea and I thought oh god I mean what's in this tea <laughs> <laughs> and but I was scared to death not to drink the tea you know so anyway we were there sipping the tea and to my knowledge it wasn't lace because I, I kept my wits about it but after about ten minutes I said to her, now, this is a story I, I wish you could see me visually because i've never seen anything like this in my life and i said to her i said you know our two friends are sitting out there on the front porch and they come in and so uh she says boom and the guy comes in and goes opens the door brings in this hippie kid and the older kid and this hippie kid comes in and he's just giant boy he's really Going to town, snapping his fingers and this and that. And she points her finger at this guy and says, Sit! And this guy was like he was hit by a bolt of lightning. He just froze in his tracks and sat right there on the floor. And I mean, if I didn't see this with my own eyes, I wouldn't believe it. But some way she hypnotized that guy right in his tracks, you know. So she had, uh, you know, five pages in Esquire magazine. Her name was Lita. The, the witch, and, and she was for real, um, but uh, Terry should have brought her to Joe Solomon. Right, <laughs> right. She could zap Joe, and then uh, we would have got a great distribution deal. Out of thing, you know? But you know, speaking of Joe Solomon, that's part of the whole distribution route, which uh, uh, is complete insanity. You know, uh, you know when I did. Um, uh, the uh, various uh, distribution deals. I found out a long time ago that, you know, you can never give a film to any distributor unless you give a cash advance or a bankable guarantee. Because, you know, it's a situation that uh, they promise you the moon, you know. And, and, you know, what they do is they have like a vice president of the 20th century. And by vice president, I mean a a 10th vice president. They'll look in Variety, they'll look in Hollywood Reporter, and they see John Doe is making a XYZ movie in Butte, Montana. You know, and, and sure enough, you know, John Doe is a first or a young filmmaker or whatever. And he'll get a phone call. 20th Century Fox is calling you. Uh, yes, uh, this is uh, Ed Smith. I'm a vice president of 20th we, Understand you're shooting this film XYZ in Montana, and oh boy, oh boy, we 20th is really interested. Give us the right of first refusal. This guy, oh my god, my god, 20th century's calling. You know, he's, he's all excited. And what he doesn't uh, realize is if they take it, they want it for their ancillary markets, they're not taking it for theatrical. So they'll make milks and dollars out of it, maybe four. And, You know, maybe DVD or whatever, and you'll never see a nickel out of it. This, this, uh, I'm looking at the screen now. This was all shot north of Malibu, and uh, we waited this whole thing. We just drove up uh, to Malibu and got out of the van and uh, started uh, filming up in the the hills there. So getting back to the
0: distributors, what was probably the worst distributor you dealt with? Well,
1: I hate to mention any names. (laughs) But, um, you know, as I said in one of our earlier interviews, I learned a beautiful lesson on the first film I ever produced, which was Racing Fever, which I wrote, produced, and directed, which meant I was, uh, you know, responsible for distribution and I was responsible for everything. And, uh, you know, should I get into that whole story again since we told that story on. uh, on uh, Hook Generation? Sure. About Allied Artists? Well, at that time, Allied Artists was a um, you know major company and they had their offices, uh, distribution offices in New York, and the production was out in the studio in Los Angeles. So I went to New York. And back in those days, you weren't carrying around a little DVD or you weren't carrying around a videotape. You were slopping big 60-pound, can- cans of film under each arm around. And if you can't afford a, a taxi, they get pretty heavy, slopping them around, one screen them to the other. And uh, so anyway, I screened it for Allied Artists. The vice presidents liked it, but they wouldn't make a decision. So I ended up going out to Los Angeles and uh, seeing um, Steve Brody, the president, and he wanted to make a deal. He liked the movie, Racing Fever. So I knew no one in all LA except one actor that I've been in summer stock with back in Woodstock, New York. And uh, I'm gonna interrupt for a minute. We shot this up at Big Bear in the winter in the snow, which is uh, out of Los Angeles. And when we pulled in the the van, the people said, come on, Bill, let's go (laughs) skiing. And when we were in the motel, the guy said, have you ever skied before? And I said, no. He said, well, i want to tell you, we average 25 to 30 broken limbs a day. <laughs> up here. So I, I said, well, if I'm directing this movie, I can't very well. Uh, well, you know. how many miles did you cover making this? Oh, I, I have no idea. We went all over Southern California. You know, Big Bear here. We're out yeah. in the desert. and uh, It's all shot in California, doubling for the rest of the country, right? Well, uh, about... I would say ninety percent was shot in Los Angeles, and then we did some pickup shots in Florida. Uh-huh. And uh, uh, but the majority of it was done in California. And,
0: and how long did this take?
1: I think we we shot it in about I would say about twenty days of, of waiting it. Yeah. So it's really only like two more days than it took to shoot right. *Generation* uh, with a script. Right with a script. <laughs> uh, so anyway, back to my distribution story. It ended up that uh, I called this actor and I said, you know, uh, an Allied artists liked my movie. Do you know any attorneys that know anything about the film movie? He said, well, a good friend of mine ended up uh, opening his own office, you know. Well, being a young guy, I said, geez, you know, I, I want like, some guy with a little gray hair. I don't want some kid out of law school. And he said, no, 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 this guy... Open his own office, but for seven years he was head uh, legal counsel for Allied Artists, which was a company I was dealing with. So the next morning when I woke in, walked into my office, this, the president and their legal counsel, their jaws dropped open like they couldn't believe it, you know. And so from that, I ended up making one of the greatest distribution deals in independent history for the time my cash advance and cash guarantees and all. So I learned right then and there, at an early age, distribution, Unless you get the cash advance or you get the guarantees, you might as well kiss it goodbye. Were you as successful the second time with Allied Artists for Hope Generation? Not quite as successful because my hands were tied some by the uh, uh, the exec producer of that. But, uh, you know, we came out okay, but we just, he, uh, he liked the... Uh, he was sort of a wheeler-dealer uh, in stocks and all, mm-hmm. and he had a big vision of uh, getting involved with Allied on a stock float and so forth. And so it ended up that uh, we did okay, but we didn't do as good um, I know, with, with the hook. But the hook did some, some business, you know.
0: Now, considering you, you're on the road ad living this film, right? Correct. I noticed the credit said filmed at Merrill Wright Studios. Okay.
1: Merrill, Merrill, that was the warehouse in, <laughs> in, in Hialeah, Florida. And, um, you know, because look look at the credits. There's credits up the gazoo here. and, yeah. and You know, what, what you used to do and, and some of them still do is they... You know, they wanted to look like a big film, so they had Charlie Schmuck and, <laughs> and uh, uh, Mary Jones and everybody. You know, to all of these credits, you know, uh, to make it look like he had a huge, huge crew. You know, but how come uh, you're not listed as director? All right, when we were actually you we know, were almost through with this picture. We read he read out of trading stamps, and we only had maybe. 60 minutes of the film left in the can so we needed like 80 minutes and I went back to Florida and in the the interim period I was uh, contacted by Ivan Torres who was a a big TV producer at the time and theatrical and he did Flipper and Gentleman and all those yeah actually
0: he he started with some great science fiction films right like Magnetic Monster and God and I I think even um, science fiction theater was his
1: Mm, yeah uh, so Ivan was a well known uh, very good uh, producer and so anyway he hired me to be head of production of Ivan Tour Studios which was basically a a family oriented production studio at the time
0: some of the films uh, just
1: you know uh, Flipper
0: Flipper TV Show, Flipper's New Adventures, Zebra in the Kitchen, Clarence the Cross-Eyed Lion,
1: Doctari TV Show. Hello down there. Yeah, he also did the Soupy Sales film, Birds Do It. Right, right, right. So anyway, Ivan tapped me to be head of production of, of tours, so I took over uh, as head of production and later became president of the studio. So at the time, it was the biggest studio on the East Coast of the United States. We had five sound stages. So it was a big operation um, at the time. And so Terry was back in California. And uh, a couple of months later, he says, I raised enough money to shoot. You got to get out here to do this shooting. I said, Terry, I cannot get out there. You know, I'm running the studio and he said, He like begged me on his hands and knees, come on, you gotta get out of here, blah, blah, blah. So I flew out on a Friday night, took the red eye, got in Saturday morning. We picked up a bunch of hippies and went out into the desert, which you'll see later on in this movie. And uh, we drummed up the scene where one of the hippie girls is having a baby. And I shot that on a Saturday and a Sunday jumped on a plane Sunday night and was back at the studio Monday morning and but because of this and the Directors Guild of America which I'd gotten into it all and and, uh, I I didn't think being the head of a family oriented flipper type operation (laughs) it would be good to put my name as director of a bunch of uh stoned-out hippies on acid trips. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, the, it had, on the other hand, it would have looked nice saying, somehow tied in saying, you know, from the people who gave you Namu the killer
1: whale. <laughs> here's that scene i will tell about. We did this on a weekend, and this is a real hippie gal. All of these people we just picked up, brought out, winged this whole thing. There's a real hippie band that <laughs> they were... We found them and then we used I hope hope she wasn't really pregnant. No. No. (laughs) It was a a basketball or something. (laughs) (laughs) Sort of like, uh, what was the the movie? The basketball was uh, a star of uh, recently. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So anyway, this is all uh, out in the desert. So the, the hippie doctor that we
0: meet is also just a real hippie? Yeah, the, he was the, terrific
1: the, in this. Yeah, the, the black, uh, yeah, the black doctor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so all of these people have never acted before. Um, the only one was a priest; uh, never been in a film before, but he was. See, this was a real hippie van. You can see the desert there. Yeah, and, and I imagine they're really hippie stone there. Yeah. Hey, man, we need some help. So all of this, this whole thing, is. Uh it is handheld yeah. you can see how it even into the zooms handheld yeah but it gives it that you know pseudo documentary mm-hmm. feel uh, so working in costumes like the guy on the left <laughs> yeah yeah. So. yeah
0: this film reminds me a lot of Dave Freeman's movie Bummer because it's like uh, the 60s are over and the hippie movement is dying yeah. and it just it's really a, just a grim change in the culture.
1: You know, a wild thing about Dave Friedman is one time I was in Los Angeles and I walked into, it was the old um, Hilton there on Sunset. And um, I don't know if it was Gene Autry or Roy Rogers or the place at the time. And I'm in the lobby and here comes Dave Friedman with some buxom broad blonde. And I said, Hey Dave, how you doing? You know, and he introduces me to this gal. I forgot her name. He said, I just flew her in from Mobile, Alabama, or something. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and I thought to myself, I never said the day, but geez, here in Hollywood uh, full of uh, you know, ten thousand blonde Bucks of (laughs) bimbos,
0: you got to fly this gal in from uh, Alabama. (laughs) Well, (laughs) I'm sure she was special, (laughs) right? Right. Now, uh, Dave and Herschel Gordon Lewis were also uh, uh, your contemporaries down here, uh, filming in the '60s, weren't they? Right, right. They
1: came down from Chicago, and I think Herschel credited me on one of helping them out get crews and equipment and so forth. so I sort of introduced them around. And uh, so they came down from Chicago and started doing some films like Blood Feast and 10,000 Maniacs and all of that, you know. But, uh, and you also had uh, William Kerwin in common with that. Oh, yeah. Uh, we, Is that I, how
0: you met them? Did, did he uh, get... uh, Bill Kerwin,
1: yeah. That's the way I met Bill Kerwin. Because <laughs> Bill was, uh, I just loved Rooney. I always called him the Rooney because he was... An all-around filmmaker, and the guy just uh, he knew everything there was. Sound, the lighting, camera, directing, acting, and so forth so on. You know. This little girl here, the lead actress, uh, I got a call from her about five years ago. She was living in Alaska. Uh, so uh, and here's this hippie girl we just picked up on Sunset Boulevard. is doing pretty good, from never acting before. Yeah. <laughs> well, they yeah. all are on this side. Yeah. And, uh... You
0: know, speaking of uh, uh, your contemporaries in Florida, um, I noticed the credit said second unit director was, uh, second unit camera, I mean, was um, Randy Grinter.
1: Yeah, Randy. Randy. That's, that's
0: the son of Brad Grinter. Correct. And if yeah. people don't know who Brad Grinter is, he... he uh, First of all, he started as an actor. I think he's he's, he's in films for you, he's in films for Herschel, and uh, he pops up in a number of films.
1: Um, uh, and then he started directing. Right, he, he was the at the very beginning of Death, Curse of Tartu. Yeah. He was the explorer that goes in yeah. the cave and yeah. gets killed.
0: Yeah, yeah. he's in uh, he's in Herschel, Gordon Lewis's How to Make a Doll, and uh, uh, films for Harry Kerwin like uh, Sweet Bird and Aquarius. But then he directed... Uh, oh, my... Well... Uh, Possibly one of the most astonishing films ever made, uh, uh, Blood Freak, which is the first pro-Christian giant chicken-headed monster anti-gore film or something. I don't uh. know. What, I don't know what you'd say. You know,
1: is and, that the one with Veronica Lake? No, that's Flesh Feast. Oh, Flesh that's Point.
0: one with maggots and Hitler. Right. <laughs> um. You know. Um, did you know Brad? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I I mean, he's in it. But I mean,
1: uh, no, I knew Brad very well. Yeah, Brad. Brad was a really good-looking guy, and uh, uh, you know I always told Brad, you know, he get a really made a fortune going over to Miami Beach to these social gatherings and dating rich, rich little widows. But, but he always liked the young chicks, you know, even when he was in his 50s and 60s. So, so the, well, from what I heard too, he used to teach filmmaking. Right.
0: And the tuition that the kids paid him, he t- would turn into a movie starring <laughs> all his students as the crew. Oh, yeah, that, that sounds feasible. I mean, why not? You yeah, know. and his last two films were mid-'70s nudist camp movies, which seems so strange, you know? <laughs> One's called Barely Proper, and the other called,
1: is called Never the Twain. And that was filmed at a nudist camp, which is uh, in Davie, Florida, and was that the one they used to play, volleyball? Or, with, uh, I think they all, all <laughs> played volleyball. <laughs> I, think just,
0: I don't think you can find a nudist camp where they don't play volleyball, at least yeah. in the movies, right? Right.
1: <laughs> uh, so, yeah, they, they were great people
0: back then, yeah, used to. Now, around this time also, this is like 1970, um, and you were working for Ivan Tours, but weren't you
1: approached about deep throw? which was shot down here? Oh yeah, that, that was, uh, well, financially, that was the biggest boo-boo I ever goofed up on. Well, not but, considering the outcome of what yeah. happened to everybody involved. No, know. but uh, the, the way that came about is, um, there was a gentleman named Seppi Debronia who lives down in Coconut Road, and Seppi calls me up at the Ivan Tours when I was president there, and he said, Bill, there's a, a group filming down here at my house, and uh, they've run out of money, and they're trying to raise $15,000, and you can buy 50% of the film. And I said, well, what's the film about? And he said, well, it's it's actually a porno film called Deep Throat. And I said, Seppi, give me a break. Here I'm running Ivan Torres, Flipper, Gentle Ben. (laughs) <laughs> all of these kitty movies, and you want me to invest in a porno? Get lost, you know. So anyway, I turned down the, the deep throat <laughs> investment scheme, you know, yeah. which uh, you know the picture. I don't know who ended up making all the money, but a lot of people made money off that film. It, yeah, you didn't really uh, it down. but anyway. Now, Frank, you can't look at the screen. You've got to concentrate on uh, giving a little spiel here about. Uh, oh, oh! I got to tell you a wild story about the Cannes Film Festival. And this is, uh, you know, in Hollywood, Tinseltown. You think there's B.S. artists that cannot hold a candle to the Cannes Film Festival. We were over there. And in fact, Manny Condy was there uh-huh. sh- shooting something uh, on that trip. And uh, so I ran into this guy. That This guy was from New York. His brother had died and left him a small film distribution company. And so he knew nothing about film, but he used it as a tax write-off traveling around the world so some way we got associated with him, you know. And So we were all at the Carlton Hotel out there on the patio. And at the festival, you know, there's a big table, and there's a couple of vacants so you just go sit with someone. So there's about 10 people there, and I was sitting there, there was a vacant chair and he comes up. I mean, the BS was so thick, you could cut it with a knife, or a machete you couldn't even cut it with. And one guy said, yeah, you know, that uh, Tom Cruise had the nerve, the nerve to want me to rewrite my script. I told Cruise to take a hike you know, and the other guy is sitting there. Do you know that Harrison Ford wanted to select the director over me for my script? and my, I told Ford to, or Harrison to just forget about it, you know. The other guy looks at his watch, oh my God, you know, uh, uh, Milt, uh whatever, some big star, you know, is waiting for me in my suite out of hell. Hell with her, I'll let her wait, you know. And so anyway, the BS goes on like this, and this guy's sitting there thinking, oh my God, Hollywood Giants, you know, Tom Cruise and, and Harrison Ford. Wow, these guys are so great and all of this. And one by one, these guys get up, you know, and leave. And so I knew what was happening, because I'd been there several times before, so I get up and left. But I watched, and this guy's sitting at the table, you know, where there'd been 10 people, and so he's sitting there like in a daze. He'd been with all these Hollywood giants. And he gets up to leave, and the waiter grabs him and said, Monsieur, that will be 1,800 francs, please. <laughs> so. The whole table was stiff this poor guy. You know? So so the name of the game is if you go to the Cannes Film Festival or, or Hollywood when you with strangers you tell the waiter, bring my check, please, I wanna pay my tab right now. So you don't get stuck with the whole nine yards, you know? But anyway, this scene is interesting. We were out in the desert and uh the, there's Terry and that was uh, the other guy in the crew and uh, I was shooting the scene I had the earphones on running the Niagara and I had my foot on a reflector because the wind was blowing and I didn't want the reflector so this whole scene because the crew was in the scene in playing the bad guys <laughs> I shot this whole thing uh, 100% by myself you know Recorded the sound, shot and everything. So, so anyway, that's what you do in a low budget filmmaking. Now, there's a flash at the end of the film that
0: shows the doctor being hit by a car. Right. But right. it's not in this. Do I assume
1: it's because the stunt didn't work? Uh, no, it was like a, a flash of him uh, visualizing oh. uh, um, what happened. Yeah. Okay.
0: It, you know? yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Because I didn't believe this story anyway. Right. <laughs>
1: Now, this shot was done in Florida. This was a pickup shot. (laughs) It matches well. Yeah. Well, we tried to get the desert look, you know. Mm. So, anyway, so we did the whole gamut here, and uh, we—
0: it's, it's just so damn interesting that this film is ad-libbed. It really is. Because it, yeah. it does have a flow to it, which is very, very surprising. That it works very well.
1: Well, so much of the credit goes to Terry, who's on the left right here as, as I'm speaking. But Terry really was able to uh, the uh, add a lot to it, you know, and, and between Terry and I and the actors and everybody just... Making it a team effort, we'd sort of wing the whole thing, you know. So why was he also using the name Stuart Merrill? Well, that, that's uh, his, uh, everybody calls him Terry, but he goes by the formal name of Stuart. Oh. Okay. Well, Terry sort of his nickname, you know. <laughs> and it makes the cast list look longer. Right.
0: right. <laughs> so, uh, well, it, since we're watching one of the most obscure films you did, I want to talk about another one of the most obscure films. You did
1: that film, uh, *The Godmothers*. Oh, *The Godmothers*. With I mean, Mickey uh, Rooney.
0: Yeah. What the hell was that all about?
1: Well, *The Godmothers* was uh, came about. Mickey Rooney was living down here, and uh, it's we, him. It's it's
0: Frank Fontaine. Yeah. From the Jackie Gleason show. Right. played uh, crazy Guggenheimer. Oh, he plays. That's the part he Plays in the film. Right.
1: right. <laughs> and,
0: and and Billy Barty. And, no, uh, no, no,
1: no. I'm sorry. He did not play he, on the Jackie Gleason show. Oh, he played, he played oh, Crazy I see. Guggenheim. But He played the Mafia chief in The
0: Godmother's. And right? Billy Barney's in it and Joey Ross. Right. And uh, Danny Aiello, I think, is in it.
1: Well, you know, the wild part about Danny Aiello is I've heard him on television say many times, and I cannot remember Danny being in that film unless he was an extra. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and all he does is publicize. He was in The Godmother's, oh. you know, and I cannot remember him as an actor, <laughs> and uh, so he must have been an extra or something. In it. But uh, he's
0: well, it, it, So it was obviously a company with a bunch of, of crazy right. nightclub comics. What, what happened to
1: it? Well, what the deal was is a, a wealthy lady um, backed then during the tax shelter days. And you know, back in the '70s, some uh, entrepreneur came up with a tax shelter scheme that uh, you make a movie and nobody can tell you what it's worth. So if you make a movie for hypothetically half a million dollars, you can write it off for five million dollars if the thing doesn't make money. You see. So uh, the exec producer was dating this wealthy woman, so he came up with it. So, Mickey Rooney, living in Fort Lauderdale, we got Mickey. So, Mickey wrote the script. And this was the wildest movie I ever directed because I had all of these comedians, you know, which were basically stand-up comedians, you know, like Joey Ross was a nightclub guy, Jerry Lewis was a nightclub guy, Frank Fontaine, and, and Mickey. And, Uh, Mickey would come in in the morning. He said, I got a brilliant idea last night. And he'd hand me 10 pages that I had never seen before. And it was a completely different scene, like we did one scene in a Japanese restaurant. We had no costumes. We had nothing. Mickey Rooney and Jerry Lester are supposed to be uh, imitating. They're hiding out from the mafia. And so they're supposed to be disguised as Japanese waiters and so we went in his real Japanese restaurant and talked to him to let us shoot and the Jap waiters and, and kitchen help were so mad because Mickey had these false teeth in him. But, and they kept rattling dishes and everything and so anyway I, I, I was basically a traffic cop with all these uh, with Mickey rewriting the script uh, and uh, all of these stand-up comedians going every which way. But it was a... Uh, uh, the picture never got any real release because uh, the tax shelter thing fell apart and the IRS was on to her and et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, but, but it was a pretty funny, funny film. It was basically, it was the godmothers and these uh, two guys are... Uh, running away from the Mafia, so they disguised themselves as women. Uh, to, yeah, but Frank Fontaine, who was blonde, and always played Crazy Gook and I, on the Jackie Gleason show, he ended up with black uh, hair and dyed mustache and all, and uh, so quit. that was one of them that was made under the Tax Shelter situation. I wonder what ever happened to it. Well, when, when videotape and all came out and everybody was making a lot of money selling the video, I approached the lady and tried to get her to sell it, but she wouldn't sell it because she was afraid the IRS was going to come down on her back because she is super, super wealthy. and talking in the $100 million wealth range, and she just had no interest making money with the film, which, huh. which is a shame, you know. Now. No
0: since we were talking about uh, Frank Fontaine. Uh, wasn't you involved with some project with Jackie Gleason?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, oh, oh, this is a wild story. With uh, uh, Budweiser Beer was going to do an in-house commercial. Now I'm going back to 1971 and they were spending 250000 budget, which is equal to like a million dollars today do you know, to do this in-house film and they had... It was uh, Jackie Gleason played the the gunfighter that had the white hat, and uh, Jack Palance played the bad guy. And it was all done in comedy, it was an in-house thing for Budweiser. So at that time, you know, we would send out a limo to pick up any uh, actor uh, that came in uh, star. So Jackie Gleason came up to me and said, Bill, I don't want you to send out. I've never met Jack Palance, I'm gonna go out and pick him up. So Jack Palance came out on the red eye, and he gets in about seven in the morning. Well, Jackie Gleason at the time, had the only stretch uh, uh, Mercedes-Benz, he had a custom-built. He had a bar in it in the whole nine yards. Well, you know, Jackie Gleason started drinking about seven in the morning when he woke up. Well, Jack Palance couldn't, uh, Drink, but he, Jackie Gleason picks him up. And by the time they get to the studio, Palance is uh, feeling pretty good. And we had big sliding—not sliding—but these glass doors in the studio, and Palance walked right into the the door and cracked his head wide open, <laughs> and he was bleeding like a stuck pig. And so, anyway, they shot this this whole. Uh, Budweiser thing, and they ended up having to scrap the thing because the dialogue was something like this. Gleason was saying, hey, you hear a bad gun fire. He was so smashed, he could hardly talk. And poor Jack Palance, Gleason got him half loaded, and, and Palance was slurring his words, so... So the dialogue wasn't there, so we shot the thing and they scrapped the whole thing. Cuss you know? <laughs> of Gleason with his <laughs> bar and his limousine. You know? and, uh, so anyway, um, do you remember, you know, I like to tell these, do you remember um, the uh, First Blood, the uh, Sylvester Stallone movie, the guy that played the sheriff? Uh, in that, he was also a director. Um, what was his name? I'm trying to remember his name. But anyway, he was a director. He was a wild filmmaker, wild guy. These are too mainstream for me. Jack, uh, Jack Sterrett, I think his name. Oh yeah, Jack, okay. Yeah, Jack Sterrett, he played the sheriff in first blood. Yeah, he, was, yeah, he also directed, uh, um, what was that, uh, Born Losers, or well, The Losers. That's right, right, the right, Losers. So Jack uh, was a real crazy guy, and this, uh, he directed a film for this producer, and the producer would go in at night and re-edit his stuff with the editor, and he found out about it. And they were at the old Sam Golden Studios there in Santa Monica, and uh, old Jack broke the producer's door down, crammed a forty-five automatic down his throat and said, you son of a bitch, if you ever touch another frame of my film, I'll blow your brains all over this wall, you know. So, you know, there's not many directors like that around anymore, you know. But but, uh, I think the wildest, one of the wildest director stories was uh, on uh, Johnny Carson, had Jimmy Stewart on one time. And uh, he said to Jimmy Stewart, he said, Was there any director that you really uh, gave you a hard time or you were scared of? And he said, Oh, yeah. He said, John Ford. He said, John Ford. Uh, He said, I was really petrified of Ford because, you know, Ford never did over three takes. He said, All these other directors I've been working with lately do 15, 20, 25 takes. Ford never did over three takes. He said, So, We did three takes, and Ford says, yeah, one and three was exactly what I wanted. Next setup, he said, I went to Mr. Ford, and I said, uh, Mr. Ford, I I feel I can do something more for this scene now. Can we have a take-four? Ford says, no, uh, three and one were perfect, exactly what I wanted. He said, please, Mr. Ford, give me a take-four. So Ford said, all right, everybody. He said, set-up, Mr. Stewart would like to do a take-four. So they roll the film and Stewart emotes and his take four and when it was over with, uh, John Ford said, did you like that take, uh, Jimmy? He said, yeah, I think take four was the best one of the lot. So John Ford walked over to the Mitchell, opened the magazine, ripped the film out, and handed it to Jimmy Stewart and says, here's your take four, <laughs> Mr. Stewart johnny carson said well what did you do and he said i was afraid to do anything i thought the son of a bitch was going to shoot me (laughs) on the spot Uh, but can you imagine today uh, any of these major superstars of director doing that to him Uh, (laughs) so anyway it's sort of a lost breed you know all of this was shot in topanga canyon uh, which we were down in Mm, yeah the
0: story gets grimmer here
1: yeah I mean, this is where he's looking for the gal and she disappeared
0: I'm surprised that Solomon uh, uh, found this uh, one of the handlers because it is so downbeat
1: well but it was what was happening at the time yeah, you figure 1970 71 I mean the youth, youth was into the, uh, to the hippie movement yeah. and all of that stuff and the uh, in, in the drive-ins, I think they would have done good, you know, just uh, with a good trailer, and, uh, you know, because at yeah. the time, uh, remember uh, Peter Fonda? They did the trip, AIP, yeah. Sam Arkoff, and all of that. You know, did did the trip, so that was sort of. I
0: I assume the fact that this couldn't get distributed is what killed Terry Merrill from doing anymore.
1: Yeah, basically. basically. Yeah. Um, but you know, old Sam Arkoff, who was president of AIP at the time, you know, he used to have a favorite saying is that we were talking about distributors that wouldn't pay producers. And yeah. Sam would go into a restaurant and some producer would come up and said,
0: you know, you,
1: you wouldn't pay me, you owe me money on my last film. And Sam would say, oh, the producer would scream out, I'm gonna sue you, I'm gonna call my attorney, I'm gonna sue you, and Sam would say, stand in line, stand in line. Because there was about 20 other producers standing in line, the suing, you know. These, these hippies were actually sitting there. Really? We just stopped and started rolling the camera. Have you seen this girl? No, no, we didn't. this is up in Topanga Canyon, which is a hippie struggle. So you didn't exactly get releases. No, no, are you kidding? If we had a release, then anyone uh, saw the picture, it would have been sued like— what, what did you pay the hippies, like the ones Nothing. that— Nothing. <laughs> free lunch, that oh, was it. God. No releases. There was never a release sign. So all of the girl that was pregnant and had the baby, you know, she could have uh, sued uh, whatever. no releases. So uh, anyway, it was— uh, Oh, you know— uh, so there's another great independent filmmaker, Ross Hagen and his wife Claire Hagen. Yeah. And uh, old Red Jacobs, who uh, was president of uh, Crown International Pictures, and he handled some of their their pictures. And he used to uh, uh, Ross, he'd see Ross on a weekend and say, take a ride with me, Ross. And Ross had two films with him been never saw any money. And one, I think, was called Side... Hackers, which was sort of a motorcycle picture. And uh, he said, uh, You know, uh, side hackers made us a lot of money. We made the. See, that's we're up at uh, Mulholland Drive. Look, see that house down there with uh, the white roof with the picket fence? Yeah. That's my daughter's house. You bought that for a schmuck. And then he said, see the the house way up on top of the mountain? That's my house. You bought that with your other picture, Smuck. So he was just, you know, really uh, came right out and told us. Twisting the knife. Right, right. So anyway, but some of these distributors, they uh, don't pay you legally uh, because it's all in the contract. And if you sign your life away, they, they don't uh, steal from you illegitimately, they steal from you legally. And some people are so desperate to get a distribution deal, they'll sign anything. And that ends up being uh, the, the last that uh, they ever see a nickel from their films. So now right after this film, uh, you're
0: still working with Ivan Tours, uh, and yet you did
1: Stanley. Right. What what my contract with Tours was, was that um, I had the right, uh, even I didn't want to be desk bound as an executive. So I had a, uh, in my contract, I was able to do one independent film a year where Tours had the first rights of refusal. So I was out in Los Angeles on Ivan Tours uh, Studio Business, and there was a picture called Willard, which was about rats, which was a horror movie, came out. And uh, Variety came out, and it said, Willard, biggest grossing film uh, of this week. So I don't know what I ate for dinner, but I went to bed that night, and I literally dreamed the whole Stanley script. And I woke up in the morning, and I said, you know, this animal's... Uh, You know, uh, horror movies is the thing that's going to happen. So I call up Red Jacobs, who was president of Crown. I said, Red, I got a a great idea for a movie. So I walked in his office. He always smoked these long cigars, the Havanas. Back then, they cost two bucks a piece. Now they cost twenty bucks a piece. But uh, he always smoked these big cigars. So uh, I, he said, well, you know drop me off the screenplay, I'll read it over the weekend. And I said, I don't have a screenplay, Randy. He said, well, drop me off the synopsis, I'll let you know what I think of it. I said, I don't have the synopsis. You son of a bitch, get the hell out of my office, what are you wasting my time for you? And I reached in and I grabbed a handful of those big Havana cigars and he's screaming at me, you son of a bitch, put those back, you know, what do you think you're doing? and I said, calm down, Red. I said, get Mark Tentz in here, who was the vice president. I said, get Joseph, who was head of distribution. And I said, get them in here. I want to tell you the story. So I told him the story. And uh, there was silence because I had the whole story in my head. And uh, there was silence for about 10 seconds. And Red said, how much will you make this movie for? And I said, I'll make it for $125,000. And he stuck his hand across the desk and shook on it. Well, he was from the old school, even though he was hard as nails, a tough cookie. When he shook your hand, it meant something, you know. He said, we'll draw the papers later, but you gotta get your ass moving on this, because I'm gonna have this in the drive-ins, April 15th. Well, this was now, uh, the, the last week in November, And, you know, in those days, you had to edit on an upright movie. Oh, it's not like you had all this computerized digital stuff today. And so the editing was a big process, and the music and the mix and all of that. So I was not about to turn down a picture, and I said, okay, no problem. So I knew this writer, Gary Crutcher, who uh, I call up Gary, and Gary was sort of a wild guy. I called Gary and I said, Gary, I gotta take the red eye back to Miami. I said, meet me at the LA airport. So this was a Friday night and Gary shows up and I said, uh, look, just sit here. I got a yellow pen, and I wrote down every scene. I wrote the characters. I said, scene one, this happened. Scene two, this happened. Cause I had it all in my head. I dropped the whole movie. And so I wrote it down. I said, I have to have a screenplay in Miami Tuesday morning. you got to get it on overnight overnight, Monday night. So the way I had met Gary is Gary, a friend of mine, recommended him as a writer. And he came up to my hotel room. He looked like uh, something out of the Midwest. He was all polyester (laughs) and didn't look Hollywood at all. He had this briefcase. And I said to him, I said, uh... Gary, can I read something? And he opens his briefcase, and he's got a forty-five automatic. He's got a dagger, and he's got all these pills. You know, and he was a pill popper. You know, so I knew Gary. All he'd do was pop pills all weekend. So Gary wrote the script over the weekend. Had it on a plane Monday night. I started shooting a week later, and we finished uh, a day before, or actually Christmas Eve. We finished. And I got it to Red and he had it in the theaters by April 15th. Wow. And uh, so uh, that, that's the way it uh, came about. And I know Gary wrote
0: a uh, great little horror film called Name of the Game is Kill. Right, right. With, uh, he's also hes also in a film. He's in, um, he plays uh, Kid Charlie Brown in uh, Giant from the Unknown.
1: And he's also in Stanley. He that's plays, right. He plays the, the professor. Yeah. So, so Gary is still a good friend of mine. He's calmed down, but Back in those days, he was a while. I have another friend, Richie Stiles, who is a director, writer out in Los Angeles. And Gary was working at Columbia Pictures at the time. I said, well, we're near the Columbia lot. Let's go by and see Gary. So I walk in and Gary said, hi, Bill, how you doing? I said, great. I said, you've been doing any films lately? He said, yeah, I wrote this script. And he said, about, you know, and he starts to walk out of the room. He said, but I had to shoot the producer. <laughs> and, Rich, and he leaves the room. And I said, Richie what the hell did he say? And I said, he said he shot the producer. You know, so, anyway, that was Gary. He shot the producer because he got in a fight with him. I don't know how long he was in jail and all that. Now, that was the scene you were talking about. No, right? no, I was talking about the scene where the doctor gets hit by the car. Oh. oh but okay. I,
0: I assume that nurse was a real nurse on yeah, duty. Yeah, 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 yeah. definitely. She's one of the few that isn't a great thespian talent at this. Right, right.
1: Well, actually, I think that lady was uh, Stuart Merrill, Terry Merrill's mother. She was a real nurse, so you better not get your address or Terry's mother. I'm looking for it. Uh, So anyway, this was was actually in Miami somewhere.
0: Uh, Now, who's the guy here who uh, creates all the the fuss here? Is he uh, a... you know, the, the guy who starts calling the guy a hippie and all this stuff. Oh, well, let, let me look and see if I can remember his name. Because he's, he's hilarious in this. Uh, he's just totally, you know, going over the top here. Uh, he also uses the word uh, whiffin' poof. Whiffin' poof. And I don't think I've ever seen a movie with the word whiffin' <laughs> poof. Yeah, this
1: guy. Oh, this this guy. Oh. <laughs> yeah, this was just some friend of terror or something. Huh. A, some wise guy or something. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's, he's he's wound up. He's
1: going. <laughs> uh, I don't I don't know whatever happened to this actor. Like, you don't have any other credits on. No, I couldn't him. find anything on. Him. Uh, uh, but this whole thing, uh, you know, I, I think it, it's. When you think of no script and winging the whole thing and it all editing together, it's absolute miracle that the thing got an answer for it. You well, know? um, after Stanley, uh, you know, Stanley was a very successful film, and I thought, what else can I do? And so I written a script called Mako Jaws of Death, which was basically. Uh, take off on Stanley, but it was instead of a guy living with rattlesnakes, he lived with uh, sharks. And I wrote that script. I couldn't get arrested on the script. Nobody, who wants to see a movie about sharks, blah, blah, blah. So uh, anyway, uh, Spielberg comes out with uh, Jaws, and Jaws, biggest grocer in film history. Well, my phone rang off the hook. And he ragged, literally ragged off the hook. And all these people that had seen the of Jaws of Death's script, Bill, buddy, how the hell are you? Blah, 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 you know. Because they knew I could get him in the can immediately. So we ended up uh, getting the financing immediately. We shot uh, the picture, and Universal had not released the film in Europe. So I made up about a seven-minute promo reel, and we released Mako Jaws of Death in Europe before Jaws was. Well, at the time, I mean, the publicity on Jaws was uh, insane, I mean, life magazine, time magazine. Everything was sharks, sharks, sharks. So we had our negative cost back out of Europe on, from that promo reel before it was ever even released in the States here. So, uh, you know, if you can be the second one on a trend, you can't be the fourth or fifth on the trend. But if you can be the first or second on a trend, then you can make some money. You know? Yeah. But, uh, oh my goodness, he's turning to booze instead of drugs. <laughs> I mean, this poor guy. Is it's going down. Down, down, yeah. down, down, you go. And, you know, he's even staggering. I mean, good Lord. Yeah. Um, This is not a pretty picture, folks. (laughs) Oh, who is it? This looks like a real one here. Who's that guy?
0: Get the the release form. (laughs) Right. What release form? Here's a bottle sign here. (laughs) Goodbye.
1: Uh, Yeah, I think that was just... Saw something there. So, and let's talk about James Bond then. Yeah, James Bond, uh, the Live and Let Die thing. Um, was I did a lot of the action sequences on that and uh, the shark footage, which was interesting as we... Well, first of all, how did, how did they, why did they uh, pick you in it? Well, so, I had met, um, uh, there was um, Cubby, Cubby and Salz, Salzman um, who were the um, producers, and I met him at the Cannes Film Festival.
0: And Tell, tell me they were fans of Sting of Death. <laughs> no, no,
1: no, but they, they knew that I had worked, you know, with sharks and animals a lot and all. So there were the alligator stuff uh, and the crocodile stuff over in Jamaica and there was the shark stuff. So anyway, I, I made a deal to uh, direct uh, all that shark stuff, which we did in Bimini. Now, now, what's interesting, the way we handle sharks is we end up, We go to Bimini, which is about 50 miles off the Florida coast, and we'll take cement blocks and we hook up a shark uh, hook and we'll get a big snapper and we'll put the hook through the snapper's tail and we'll throw out about 10 or 15 of these on the reefs at night. And sure enough, there'll be three or four big sharks hit that uh, snapper and they get hooked, and they'll drag that cement block around until they get tired, and then they'll swim in a circle. And we just go out in the morning, and we got a special big casket set up in the bottom of the boat that we shoot oxygen in, and we'll haul these 10, 12-foot tiger sharks into the uh, into the boat, and then on the south end of Bimini is a big harbor that we wire off and we put manila rope around their tails with about a 10-foot uh, tail on it, and when we want to use them, we just hook the uh, gaffer's hook around the uh, the big uh, rope and we pull them into the boat and throw them in the casket and take them out and uh, you know, work them. And a lot of people say, do you drug the sharks? Well, you can't drug a shark or it'll die on you, you know, immediately. And uh, so anyway, we use these sharks for, you know, maybe three or four minutes until they get too frisky and then you gotta let them go. So you gotta have a lot of sharks. So so that's the way we uh, we built the tunnel in Miami. And we brought the tunnel over to Bimini and set it and fed the sharks through the tunnel where they're coming up to bond and all that. Uh, So
0: just just put in perspective a minute what the like the cost of an action sequence in a James Bond
1: film is versus oh, oh. the budget of this. <laughs> well, what I spent on James Bond, because they give you the money to spend, I could have made 10 of these. I mean, this this is real too, this guy just happened to have this car. Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anybody that happened to walk by, would grab him and, you know, want to be in the movies? Yeah, <laughs> well, we like your car, no problem, <laughs> Bob. You know? And in Jamaica, that's a famous saying.
0: No problem,
1: man. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, I think if uh, these guys do a release club, they'd probably come look at in the theater to see if it come out so they could see Now, here, we had to wait, we waited, sat around for an hour for a real train to come by. You know, wow. in a big major movie, they hire the whole train and have it sitting off. Uh, yeah. camera and they'd bring that train by and shoot it 15 times, though. So, we just had to get the train when it actually came by. So,
0: now, I, I I know myself, but there's something fun about filming on the cuff like that, just going into places and just
1: no permits, no nothing, just shoot. Well, yeah. the two biggest coups I ever pulled on that is when I did Ceasefire with Don Johnson. I went up to Washington. One of the crucial scenes in the movie was with Don Johnson and Lisa Blunt come to the wall, uh, which is the Vietnamese wall. And uh, I went up to Washington and the bureaucracy and the nightmare. No, you cannot film at the wall, blah, blah, blah. We don't give permits to anybody commercially. It can only be a documentary for... 60 minutes or whatever. So they would give us permission. So we fell back to just the old IMO trick, which is the World War II camera, which is a very small camera, it has a 100 foot load. We just went to the wall and filmed it. Everybody thought we were filming, you know, because it looks like a little amateur camera, but it literally has a great picture though. But the biggest coup on ceasefire I pulled out. You see, this was about uh, Vietnam veterans and Don Johnson was uh, uh, suffering uh, from delayed stress syndrome and uh, and the government would not admit that these veterans had this. So in Florida, there were no Huey helicopters around uh, private that you could uh, hire to look like. Uh, and there was a crucial flashback scene to Nam. So I went to the Pentagon and they want to read the script, no, they wouldn't give us any cooperation. I went to the National Guard, and they read the script, and the National Guard has to get permission from Washington. They wouldn't give us any. So here we have no Huey helicopters. Uh, so I went out to the Army Reserve, and I said to the guy, is there any Vietnam veterans that are flying out here on weekends? Yeah, I said, yeah, yeah, Captain such and such is a Vietnam veteran. he mm-hmm. so I went to him and I said, Captain, do me a favor, read this script, and I'll call you. You read over the weekend, I'll call you uh, during the week. And so he read the script, and I called him up, and he said, well, What do you want? And I said, well, Do you believe in this script? And he said, Yeah, it's right on the money. And I said. All I want to know is where you fly on the weekends. So they fly out over the Everglades. And there was an old deserted airport out there. So I said, you know where such and such an airport is? Oh, yeah, yeah, we fly over there all the time. And I said, I'll meet you out there, you know, at 11 o'clock in the morning. And we had some First Cavalry stickers, because his particular uh, Huey had a Red Cross sticker on it. And so he flew out there and says, what do you want? And I told him all the shots we needed. We took the first cavalry sticker and put it on, and I stole all of the shots. You know, the Pentagon, when they saw the movie, they must have said, where the hell did this helicopter stuff come from? You know. But there was an old crashed um, Huey that we... Took just the uh, it had no engine it had nothing except the actual uh, uh, body of it and we took that body and we put it on a crane and we lifted it up with Don Johnson and them in it and intertwined it with the real Yui stuff so it worked out good oh there's
0: the fu- there's him getting hit by the car right? yeah yeah that
1: was the uh, that was the black doctor that got hit yeah but how uh, come you didn't see it earlier? I don't know. He just flashed back. We'd probably because, oh, uh, we left California and didn't have him. Oh. That was a double. Oh, okay. <laughs> so uh, Terry and his madness probably <laughs> 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 forgot that
0: uh,
1: we didn't have the real doctor, you know.
0: And when you went know. into churches, um, how did you light it?
1: Just lit it with uh, uh, portable stuff. You know, battery-operated stuff. No one came by? No. Back in those days, all the churches were open. You know, we saw a lot of that, you know, like 1, 2 in the morning. Now they lock up the oh, majority yeah, of the yeah, churches. Yeah. But back then, they you know, had churches open that you could come in all the time. You know. I mean,
0: I, I, it would have been nice to... <laughs> Somebody walked. You know, one of the
1: priests walked in. He said,
0: hey, "Hi. <laughs> we're shooting the psychedelic priest. You want to? You want
1: to? <laughs> want to be in it?" Well, you notice all the lighting is pretty tight stuff. No big wide shots. Yeah. It's in the church, you near know, the lights.
0: You know. Oh, I, I think we're finding redemption here.
1: Yeah. Oh boy, he's he's going to find religion. I can tell. Uh, but this. um religious thing we did we did this in a real meeting this was right behind swabs drugstore um, that we did the religious meeting with all the
0: and nobody cared that you were pointing cameras at no no
1: we went in and told them what we we're going to do and uh, right, well, it was certainly a, <laughs> a much more innocent time wasn't it yeah right here this yeah. is all this is all for real we just put him in the audience shot the whole thing, and, uh, you know, and and told him, please don't look at the camera. And, uh, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but this was an old, big old house right behind Schwab's Drugstore, Sunset. We we shot this. As you can see, it's sort of hot lighting. Yeah, yeah, it it gives it a good feel. Yeah. So, and this was a gal actually making her little spiel. Wow. you just film that. So. It's instant
0: production value when you use reality. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so,
1: yeah, yeah, it ended up, you know, that we uh, should have uh, got this thing released, but, uh, you know, a fist fight with the distributor. But, uh, <laughs> that, that
0: would tend to, <laughs> to kill any film's chances.
1: Uh-huh. It, you know, the Hollywood story is, is wild, and there was a gentleman down here, a doctor that had a script, and I had. they did some sort of write-up in the local newspaper about me, and he calls me up and like, goes, well, I got a great script, you know, I want to you know take a look at it, I think I'd get the money to produce it, blah, 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 you know. So, Anyway, he tells me the story. He's on a plane going out to Los Angeles. There was some actor. There wasn't a well-known actor, but it was somebody you could recognize, you know, that's on TV a lot. So he's like starstruck. And he goes out. And he doesn't realize that Hollywood is like a bunch of vultures sitting in a tree ready to pick your bones there, you know. So this... Uh, Actor said, "Oh yeah, wow! I'd love to read your script. Yeah, blah blah. blah. Oh, you're a doctor? Yes, blah blah blah." And uh, so he goes out and he introduces the doctor to his agent and his business manager. Long story short, on pre-production, they bled this doctor for eighty thousand bucks, <laughs> and nothing ever happened. You know, they just took the uh-huh. money and ran. Uh-huh. And he comes back here, and so he's asking my advice, how do I do a picture independently? And I said, well, the first thing we got to do is break the script down. Then we got to do a detailed budget, you know, based on the breakdown. And, uh, you know, you got to know what the picture's going to cost before you, you know, and then I can, uh, since there were no attorneys here that really knew the film, I said, I can get with your attorney and we can set up a limited partner, Jim. So, anyway, I was doing at least a a one week solid work, and I wanted something like that. Game a price of uh, three or four thousand bucks or whatever. He raised hell. I mean, oh, no, 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 I couldn't afford it. And I said, You son of a bitch. Here you let these Hollywood sharks pick your bones dry for eighty (laughs) thousand. And here I'm going to work myself silly. to, to really try and get a legitimate deal and you don't want to come up with a lousy three or four thousand. So that's what happens is, oh, oh, I remember a story on this, which was great, based on that. We were sitting in the Inn and, and this old producer walks in and this guy had an uh, office at uh, Allied Artists, actually at Allied Artists Studios. And he... Had been in pre-production for 20 years, but he had never done a movie, and he called, carried the script around all the time because he knew that he could get people off the out of the airport or whatever, to, you know, to uh, listen to his BS and give him a little front money. So uh, he ended up, you know, being uh, in pre-production but never doing a movie. Well, we've come full circle here. Yeah, and and half of these credits, uh, when you see the crew credits, I think half of them were made up because uh, some of the real ones. Randy Gretner was in this. He was a real young kid at the time. He was one of the crew members. And uh, uh, he learned a lot, I guess, from Brad. And uh, and he went on to to produce a film called Master Blaster, which... um, They did up in Jacksonville when he produced that. So, I think
0: we're fading out.